Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. It was supposed to be a $40 million program supporting 20,000 students. But at the urging of government bureaucrats, the CSSG ballooned in size to support 100,000 students with a maximum price tag of $543 million. How did it balloon in size in a matter of weeks? Why did We Charity Foundation really sign the contribution agreement? What government misstep almost made We Charity pull out of the program before it even launched? I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the insider story you won't hear from politicians like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev. Mission Creep On April 22nd, Craig sent We Charity's preliminary proposal for the CSSG to Rachel Warnick at Employment and Social Development Canada and copied numerous other government officials, including Finance Minister Bill Murnau, who was also the local member of Parliament for We Charity's riding, and Bardish Chagger, the Diversity and Inclusion Youth Minister. It was a 22-page outline for a digital program that would help 20,000 young Canadians find summer service placements during the COVID pandemic. The bilingual program would consist of a web-based portal that would match people between the ages of 16 and 29 with volunteer opportunities at nonprofit organizations across the country. These placements would offer alternatives to traditional summer jobs, provide skills development opportunities, be diverse and inclusive, and address many urgent social needs. The program would run from late May to the end of August and conclude with a virtual celebration hosted by WE and streamed live online. WE Charity was not offering placements itself. It was simply the program administrator. Its role was to match students with nonprofit organizations, track their hours, and ultimately disperse government funds based on the number of hours logged. The system would set minimum and maximum hours for each volunteer opportunity, and participants would earn $500 for every 30 hours completed, or $16.67 per hour. The maximum number of hours any one student could work was 300, meaning the maximum grant from the government would be $5,000. If the program attracted a full complement of 20,000 young people, We Charity estimated that the total cost to Canadian taxpayers would be $44.5 million. Of that, $30 million would be grant money paid directly to students. Not every student would want or be able to complete the full 300 hours. $12 million, or $600 per student, would cover the cost of developing and administering the program, vetting and supporting nonprofit partners, and so on. And $2.5 million would be to reimburse costs incurred by participating organizations. Because it would soon balloon in scope and size at the government's request, 
We Charity's original proposal was less than a tenth of the eventual budget for the program. Craig also attached to the email one additional document that was unrelated to the CSSG. It was a summary of a concept for an entrepreneurship program that had been percolating within WE as COVID took hold and concerns grew about limited summer job opportunities for students. WE Charity had previously told Warnick and other civil servants that as a general matter, it viewed a pay-for-service model for promoting volunteerism, in other words, the concept behind the CSSG, as inferior to funding young people to develop socially-minded businesses. As Craig explained it to me, when you pay a student to volunteer, the program requires constant injections of government cash, or it runs out of money. But if you help young people build their own social enterprises, they have a self-sustaining model. It is a twist on the old adage, instead of paying someone to fish, you help them launch their own sustainable fishing business. As conceived, WE's suggested entrepreneurship program would encourage up to 8,000 young people to create social enterprises. Each participant who completed the program would receive a grant of around $500, and $800,000 would be set aside to support the very best idea and bring it to life. The funding request for the entrepreneurship proposal ranged from $6 million to $14 million, depending on how the program was designed. So it was far smaller than the CSSG. Craig had already tried to interest Warnick and several others, including Mary Ng, Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion, and International Trade, Bardis Chagger, and Bill Marneau in this social enterprise idea, but all were focused on the pandemic and it gained little traction. But he decided to attach the alternative proposal to his email just in case, a decision he would come to regret. Opposition politicians would later point to Craig's prior outreach regarding the social entrepreneurship program and the fact that he'd included it with the initial CSSG proposal as evidence that we charity had lobbied for the CSSG. In fact, the opposite was true. We Charity was raising flags about the CSSG concept. But as this story unfolded, truth proved insufficient to stop questions, suspicions, and politically motivated efforts to sow confusion. A WTF Moment On the very day we submitted its CSSG proposal, Prime Minister Trudeau publicly announced that his government was allocating almost $9 billion to support Canadian students during the pandemic. This huge amount of money would be shared among a great many initiatives, including the Canada Emergency Student Benefit, enhanced student loan programs, and research grants, as well as the CSSG. COVID has meant that there aren't as many jobs out there for students, Trudeau said, and without a job, it can be hard to pay for tuition or the day-to-day -day basics. You might normally have turned to your parents for help, 
but right now mom and dad are stretched too. The allocated funds, he explained, would provide financial support, create job opportunities, and promote a sustainable economic recovery. He specifically mentioned the CSSG, which he said would provide grants of up to $5,000 to give students valuable work experience and skills while they help their community during the COVID pandemic. This announcement was a literal WTF moment at We Charity. Clearly, the announcement had been planned for some time, and there is no way anyone in government could have digested We's preliminary proposal, which had arrived the same day. People at We were flummoxed. How could the government announce a program when it hadn't firmed up any details? Had it already received proposals from other organizations and was further along in the process than thought? Was it not seriously considering We Charity as administrator? Was it intending to barrel forward even if it had not yet decided how the program would work and which organization would handle its administration? No one at We Charity knew the answers. This made everyone very nervous and would foreshadow the chaotic process to come. Looking back, perhaps we should have seen this coming, Dalau later told me. The warning sign that there were just too many fundamental questions and many constant changes, and that the government wasn't ready to be collaborative and supportive. For two days, we charity heard nothing more. Then on April 24th, Craig was invited to join a conference call with Warnick and senior finance officials, including Michelle Kovacevic, the assistant deputy minister, and Amit Paul Singh, a senior policy advisor, to Bill Murnau. Craig was briefed on the prime minister's announcement and given further information on the government's intentions and priorities for the CSSG. This was when he learned that people were now imagining a program with 40,000 or even 100,000 participants instead of 20,000 originally discussed. The understanding was still that the program would launch by the end of May, which was just over a month away. The Kilbergers and the We Charity leadership team immediately had misgivings. The program was beginning to look like a greater commitment than originally envisioned, with a much larger budget and scope, and on a brutal and ever-changing deadline. During the last week of April, the charity tried to get a handle on the government's expectations. As the organization's executive director, and given the significance of the initiative, Dalal personally led the project and oversaw liaison with the government. Although We Charity didn't know which other organizations were being considered to run part or all of the program, the civil service informed the organization on a number of occasions that it was asking other charities to submit proposals. Later, documents released to the FINA committee revealed the government was looking at the online platform Do Some Good and the Governor General's office as options. And other government documents show that Shopify 
and taking it global, had also been contacted, and that Ceredian, Imagine Canada, Volunteer Canada, the Canadian Red Cross, and the United Way were floated as possibilities. Michelle Kovacevic confirmed this when she appeared before the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics, commonly known as ETHI, in December. In fact, she told the committee, we went through many potential organizations as we were trying to land both a design and the potential delivery partner. On April 28th, there were multiple phone calls involving Craig, Sophia Marquez, We Charity's Director of Government and Stakeholder Relations, Warnick, Singh, and Ritu Banerjee, the Executive Director of ESDC. The government officials said that they had sourced another provider to handle delivery of the program through an online platform. Banerjee asked Marquez to provide contact information for We Charity's technology staff so government tech experts could connect and discuss. Those conversations quickly revealed that the government solution and contemplated provider would not be sufficient to meet the needs of the students. By the end of the week, Dalau had set up a separate team within We Charity to lead administration of the program should it ultimately become the responsibility of the organization. This team began work on an updated and more comprehensive proposal based on feedback received from the government in calls and emails. We's willingness to hit the ground running before the CSSG contribution agreement was even signed later came under scrutiny. Conservative MP Pierre Poliev, for one, aggressively questioned Dalal, Marquez, and Scott Baker at the FINA hearings about who had given them permission to start working. Somebody told you over at WE that you could go and start spending money hiring people and implementing the program, he asserted. Who told you that? But at the time, people at WE were only thinking about the fast approaching deadline to launch this national program. It was clear that if the charity did not start the process to ramp up, and soon there would be no program at all. Many people misunderstood this early activity and made fodder of we starting to work as if the contract was in the bag, Dalau later said to me, not true. As a lawyer, I knew exactly what she meant. In my line of work, it's not uncommon to spend time engaging in a detailed analysis of a case or providing advice to a client even before you are formally retained. In fact, that's often precisely how you get hired. You cannot say to a potential client, hire me, and then, and only then, I will offer you my advice and insights. And that's especially true if it's a significant matter or a project you really care about. And we cared about the CSSG. This was about lending a hand to young Canadians in the midst of a once-in-a-century crisis. In her testimony before the ETHI committee, Gina Wilson, Deputy Minister for Diversity and Inclusion and Youth, explained that with contribution agreements, a start date 
may be identified prior to the date of the agreement signature. Here, the start date for the CSSG contribution agreement was May 5th, even though the agreement was not signed until late June. That's because it may often take weeks for a contribution agreement to be negotiated, Wilson said. And that is what occurred in this particular instance. Meanwhile, work needed to get done if there was any chance of launching the CSSG on schedule. So we charity took a risk. If the contribution agreement never got signed, the organization would not have been reimbursed for any expenses. We were putting a lot on the line and assuming risk, Dalau said. But what other choice did we have? If we didn't start the work, it would have been impossible for this program to launch before summer was half over. Because she knew that we had to act before it was too late, Dalau began to reach out to contacts in the Canadian nonprofit sector to discuss logistics. She started with Bruce McDonald, CEO of Imagine Canada, a bilingual organization that advocates for researchers and works with Canadian charities, nonprofits, and social entrepreneurs. On the call, they discussed many issues, including the wisdom of paying young people to do volunteer work. McDonald cautioned that many nonprofit organizations did not support the idea of affixing a dollar value to volunteer hours. This warning was borne out when DeLaw later contacted Paula Spivak, the president and CEO of Volunteer Canada, a nonprofit association promoting volunteerism, and she declined to take part in the CSSG. Our organization had concerns about paying an hourly rate for community service and calling this volunteering. Spivak subsequently testified at the FINA hearings. This could create the wrong message about volunteering and potentially undermine volunteer engagement in the future. As these and other concerns were beginning to reveal themselves, a flurry of activity was happening within the federal government all of it outside the purview of We Charity. Briefing notes, funding notes, and recommendations were flying between the Privy Council Office, the Prime Minister's Office, PMO, the Finance Department, ESDC, the Government's COVID Committee, and Minister Chagger's Youth and Diversity Office. ESDC was especially focused on pushing We as its choice to deliver the CSSG, presumably because it had seen what we could do over the years and had historically faced challenges trying to get a government-run youth program off the ground. Later, when questions about the program reached a flashpoint, many opposition politicians and media pundits zeroed in on the idea that We Charity had been awarded a sole source contract. In other words, there were no other bidders. That may be a valid criticism of the government, but the people at We Charity never knew who the government was or was not talking to. They were told from the start that other groups had been asked to submit proposals to administer part or all of the program. Mark and Craig told me 
that government contacts had even described ongoing discussions with various alternative administrators, with Wernick at one point telling Mark that another organization under consideration was not a viable option because it was archaic. Mark assumed, incorrectly, that she had reached that conclusion based on a submitted proposal. It wasn't until well after the CSSG was announced that We Charity learned it was the only organization that had put forward a formal proposal. In preparing his report, Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion, an independent, nonpartisan parliamentary officer responsible for policing government conflicts of interest, found that in early April, ESDC officials had reached out to the Canada Service Corps, which already had a modest microgrant program, to ask about expanding its capacity. But the agency could provide only about 7,000 microgrants and said it would take three months to put everything in place. The government wanted something bigger and wanted it faster. Rachel Wernick told Commissioner Dion that Volunteer Canada was also approached. That organization, Warnick explained, had already received government funding to develop a platform to give young people easy access to volunteer opportunities. It had built a database of 80,000 of those opportunities, but the uptake was limited, largely because of a lack of social media integration. The government concluded that it needed a third party with a larger network and the ability to get the word out on social media. Specifically, Dion wrote, we was in a position to help provide 20,000 placement opportunities, assist in populating the portal by working with its network to seek new opportunities, perform a clearinghouse function, and vet opportunities based on the criteria provided and administer the grants to each recipient. We Charity was not privy to any of these discussions, nor should it have been. The government's internal decision-making is opaque, and stakeholders never have access to it. To my mind, by having what appeared to be informal conversations with multiple candidates, instead of acquiring formal proposals, the government fueled much of the public perception that the decision to put the program into We Charity's hands was part of some backroom deal. As government officials would later testify, time pressures made a typical procurement process unfeasible. I'm not positioned to say whether that is a fair basis for a sole source contract, but it was certainly not a fair basis for the accusations hurled at We Charity, which had no voice in the process and no obligation to do the work of civil servants. Instead, the organization was wholly focused on the preparation needed to roll out a project of national scope in an accelerated time frame. To that end, We Charity delivered to Warnick a more comprehensive proposal in the form of a 58-page slide deck. The new outline was based on two core principles. One, the need to provide meaningful volunteer opportunities for young people and do it quickly. And two, 
the need to create an easy-to-implement program to facilitate the work of nonprofits in a time of extreme hardship. The new maximum budget estimate per instructions from ESDC for a program with 100,000 participants was $543.5 million. That would be $500 million in grants to students, assuming all participants earned the maximum grant, which was very unlikely, and $8.7 million to participating nonprofits. We Charity would receive a maximum of $34.8 million to administer the program, and this was just to cover reimbursement of defined eligible expenses. The organization could not make any profit or be paid anything because this was not a commercial contract between the government and a private company. On May 5th, We Charity had its only point of contact with the PMO. At the request of the civil service, Craig Mark and Sophia Marquez spent 30 minutes briefing policy director Rick Thies on the organization's proposal for the CSSG. Critics later tried to spin this call as some kind of back-channel dialogue between we and the prime minister, but Dion debunked the notion in his ethics report. I could find no evidence, he wrote, that Mr. Trudeau provided specific instruction to cabinet or to his ministerial staff on how to proceed in respect of the student aid package. While Delau and senior leadership continued to liaise with the government and move the program forward, Scott Baker was working to bring on board the nonprofit organizations that were essential if the program was to create the needed number of volunteer placements. Here, too, the government's increased expectations were ballooning the project. We Charity now had to bring on board at least a hundred partner organizations, double the original number. We were trying to solve two challenges, Scott explained. One was to give young people an opportunity to receive money and gain professional experience during the summer months when those opportunities no longer were available. And the second challenge was to structure this in such a way that these students could substantially contribute to the not-for-profit sector within Canada. To get much-needed funds into the hands of students in a summer that promised a job drought was obviously a high priority. Mark and Dalal had strongly recommended that the program pay minimum wage at the very least, and preferably something closer to industry standard. The government rejected this and set the honorariums at below minimum wage. We Charity would later shoulder the blame for this, even though it was a decision that went against its initial recommendation of $16.67 per hour, an amount above the minimum wage in every province. I think it's important to note that this was not the We Charity program, said Scott. It was a government program. We were following what we were told to do. We raised all these concerns we heard from the sector, but in the end, we had to follow whatever direction ESDC wanted to take.
Delisle was more blunt in her assessment. We were thrown under the bus, she said. What people failed to understand is that it was the government's decision to select We Charity. It was the government that designed the framework and parameters of the program. We did not design the program. We were the implementing partner. Misgivings Mount Despite the missteps, the organization still forged ahead because WE's executive team believed that the program would help young people and struggling nonprofits. One of the first orders of business was figuring out how young volunteers with little to no work experience would be trained. WE Charity had not forgotten the lessons learned in the 1990s when it rolled out programming to help students meet their required 40 volunteer hours. For small charities, the burden of training and supervising young volunteers could be prohibitive. If the CSSG was a burden on nonprofits, then it would have failed to meet one of its main objectives. This led to the idea of inviting teachers who would be out on summer vacation to act as mentors for the student volunteers, taking this task off the shoulders of the participating nonprofits. The teachers could also help identify and recruit indigenous, LGBTQ, new Canadian, and economically disadvantaged youth into the program. Inclusivity was a key component of We Charity's proposal. It did not want these paid opportunities to go entirely to privileged kids. Also, the young people who would most benefit from this program often required training and hands-on coaching to succeed. For assisting a group of students, teachers would be paid just as if they were working a summer teaching job. Board member Jerry Connolly, a former director of education with the Toronto District School Board and now an education advisor for the Learning Partnership, a Canadian charity that develops experiential programs to help young people continue learning outside the classroom, told me how much support she saw for the CSSG among fellow educators. I had never seen such enthusiasm and interest, she said, and it was going to make a great impact for students. It was a complex program to put together in such a brief period. And not only did we do so in an efficient way, but comprehensively across Canada. Conley described listening in on many of the teleconferences that Mark, Dalau, and other team members had initiated with teachers across Canada to get them involved. There were hundreds of people who wanted to get rolling, she said. We had no problem at all getting people interested. It was overwhelming. I heard much the same thing from Ruben Borba, an educator with the Toronto Catholic District School Board, who helped We Charity recruit students for the program. He told me the CSSG offered a holistic approach and real-world opportunities to kids who wouldn't otherwise have them. These students have talents within them. Now they had a chance to use them. They would not just be creating an impact for themselves. They would be creating an impact for the organizations that they worked for. Unfortunately, 
Teachers participating in the short-lived program were later cast in the media as seeking to benefit financially from their students' participation. We Charity was even accused of paying teachers a bounty for recruiting participants. Pierre Poliev told the CBC that he'd never heard of teachers being paid for any kind of compensation, a bonus for recruiting their own students to an activity, and he suggested this would somehow negatively impact the professionalism of the entire school system. No one in the media seemed inclined to point out that teachers who work over the summer get paid to do so, and that these teachers would be delivering months of supervision and mentorship. Across the board, no one was giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. These charges should have been tackled head-on in the court of public opinion, but We Charity was muzzled by the government, which advised Mark, Dalal, and others that it viewed the contribution agreement as requiring all program communications to come from or be approved by the government. This may sound surprising, given that We Charity's name is now forever tied to the CSSG, but this directive reflected the reality that We Charity was supposed to be a quiet partner implementing a program created and branded by the government. As it turned out, the charity had no voice and the government was a poor advocate. I was shocked that nobody from the government thought about what the communication strategy and plan was going to be when questions or misunderstandings came to light, Delau recalled. And we kept flagging this to them and gently, directly and indirectly flagging that there needed to be a plan and immediately. The silencing of We Charity would have major ramifications after the program launched, as government public and media relations offices proved ineffective in addressing misunderstandings and correcting misinformation. The arrangement also prevented some proactive outreach from We that might have had a useful impact. Meanwhile, the projected launch date shifted five or six times, from the end of May to the end of June. In fact, the government didn't finalize the date until two days before the launch. This, too, caused headaches for We. If the program didn't start until well into the summer, it would be impossible for many participants to get their 300 hours in. And there was one more surprise in store. In the days leading up to the launch, We Charity was told that it would have to indemnify the government against any claims resulting from injuries or other harm to students participating in the program. This came as a shock because the charity was only supposed to be the back-end administrator of a program that was entirely directed and funded by the government. And in a pandemic, the risk was about as big as it could possibly get. If a student were to contract COVID at a volunteer placement, we charity could be held liable. If that student inadvertently brought the disease home or to church or to a senior care facility, We Charity could be held liable. The scale of potential lawsuits could cripple the organization's ability to continue funding its core work at home and overseas. At that moment, Craig told the government that We planned to withdraw from the program. The government's shifting goalposts were simply unreasonable. Warnick called Craig, 
to explain that the program would not happen without We Charity at this late stage. The civil service had no backup option. We relented. Craig told me that the only reason the organization stuck it out was because it felt a responsibility to the young people who wouldn't receive their grants and the charitable partners who had already been identified to participate in the program and were counting on the volunteers. This is when We Charity Foundation, which would later become the focus of so much political vitriol, entered the story. Years before, this foundation, also a registered charity, had been set up by We Charity's lawyers at Miller Thompson to act as a potential future repository for the organization's real estate assets. It is common among large-scale nonprofits to transfer assets to a separate legal entity so they are protected from creditors if a lawsuit creates significant liability. But the plan never proceeded because several We Charity board members, including me, wanted additional time to consider legal advice and the implications of such a transfer. There were never any concerns about We Charity Foundation itself. So for years, We Charity Foundation existed only on paper, ignored, unused, and owning not so much as a pencil. But when the massive liability issues around the CSSG came up, it was determined in consultation with Mirla Thompson that the foundation was the best way to protect the organization and perhaps more importantly, protect the work being done in communities around the world in case the worst happened. This would also ensure cleaner reporting lines and expense management because the sole purpose of the foundation would be administration of the CSSG. We Charity proposed this to the government and the government agreed. So we formally changed the mandate of the foundation to reflect its new role as the entity managing the CSSG. And We Charity Foundation then procured liability insurance so it could satisfy the government's request for indemnification. In the later maelstrom surrounding the program, critics such as NDP MP Charlie Angus would frequently describe the foundation as a real estate shell company. In a deliberate attempt to suggest that We Charity was engaged in a shady and potentially fraudulent maneuver. The media would jump on the bandwagon with headlines such as the National Post's government's $912 million contract for student volunteer program was awarded to a We Shell company. But there was nothing suspect about We Charity Foundation. It was a registered charity it was never used for any real estate transaction. It was simply used to facilitate a request by the government with complete transparency on the part of We Charity. And it became another example of how the organization's efforts to find a way to make the CSSG work came back to haunt it. Ready for launch. Contract negotiations dragged on until June 23rd, when both parties finally signed on the dotted line and closed the deal. Throughout the negotiation process, the We Charity executive team discussed CSSG program details, 
including use of We Charity Foundation with the U.S. and Canadian board chairs. Dr. Jacqueline Sanderlin, affectionately known as Dr. J, and Greg Rogers. They then briefed the other board members, Kate Burnett, Jerry Conley, and Dr. Astrid Christofferson in Canada, and Kanan Asrathanam, David Stillman, and me in the U.S. Initial briefings were by email, then a full presentation and discussion took place via video conference. Many board members had questions, specifically about program logistics and contractual terms, but there was no hesitancy. There was uniform optimism and support for the CSSG. Greg, the recently appointed chair of the Canadian board, described it as a win-win-win program. A longtime member of the Toronto Catholic District School Board and current instructor in York University's Faculty of Education, Greg saw the CSSG as a great opportunity for students and teachers alike, and he had already been working to help the charity identify educators and nonprofit partners long before the agreement was signed. If there's anyone who knows about empowering young people, Greg is the guy. He spent his professional life not only as a teacher and school administrator, but also as a successful entrepreneur, running adventure learning experiences and Olympia Sports Camp, two organizations that support learning and leadership in young people. It also happens that Greg was my grade nine vice principal at Toronto's Brebeuf College, where Mark and I both went to high school, affectionately known as ROG. He is admired for his passion as a lifelong rugby coach, as he is for his teaching. He taught me a great deal about leadership and has always been an inspiring mentor, then and through our time together at WE. In an interview for this book, he described to me some of the early prospects for the CSSG. I have a friend who's a teacher in Newfoundland and very big into sports, and he used to work for me as a counselor. He told me he had volunteers ready to coach little kids at soccer and rugby. He had set all of that up. They were going to run soccer clinics on Zoom for high school students, Greg said. I also knew St. Clair Catholic Church in Waterloo was going to build homes with the help of volunteers for the homeless in their community. We also had programs where the students were going to work on farms and so on. Those are just a few examples. There were so many more, and the possibilities were endless. We were all so excited. Jerry Conley also understood the potential impact of the program. I think the idea of wanting to have we involved in having students do volunteer work was excellent. Because really, that's what we is all about, she told me. The timelines were incredibly daunting, but we had the network for it. And having had experienced we, I felt, well, if anybody could do it, we could. The U.S. members of the board, including me, were almost jealous. I view the program as a shining example of how everything that We Charity had worked on for decades could come together 
and provide relief and even hope during the pandemic. I was so enthusiastic. I thought the CSSG should be replicated in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I wasn't the only one who felt that way. The most vocal advocate was author and generational expert David Stillman. I was so impressed with what the Canadian government was doing, saying kids could earn grant money by volunteering and money would be given based on the level of their work and time committed, he said. I just thought it was brilliant. And what excited me was the long-term prospect of taking it out of politics and doing it privately in the U.S. On June 25th, just two days after the contribution agreement was signed, Justin Trudeau announced the launch of CSSG. The team had moved mountains to get everything ready for rollout in such a short period of time. An incredible achievement and something to celebrate. What had started as a program for 20,000 students was now meant for 100,000. A $44.5 million initial budget had ballooned to $543 million. The government had imposed massive increases and we charity had to shoulder responsibility for all of it, despite retaining virtually no decision-making power. In the end, we had to pretty much do nearly everything for 100,000 young people, Delal said, and it was this mission creep that was brutal. Delal and her team worked so hard to build this program, Mark told me. It still blows my mind. Think about it. In less than two months, they built a coast-to-coast -coast bilingual program with hundreds of full-time staff to mentor youth, a seamless technology interface, and partnerships with nonprofits ready for the youth. People were working 12-hour days, seven days a week, to make this happen. But in the moment, it all seemed worth it. Young people flocked to register, and within days of the launch, 35,000 applications had come in from every province in the country. Of those, an amazing 67% were from underrepresented populations, including visible minorities, women, LGBTQ people, and indigenous Canadians. On the other side of the equation, 84 diverse nonprofit partners had signed on, including Scouts Canada, and Girl Guides of Canada, Spinal Cord Injury Canada, the Canadian Arab Institute, L'Arche, Anishinaabwe Health, Good Shepherd Ministries, the Toronto Zoo, and the Gord Downey and Cheney Winjack Fund. The hard part, it seemed, was over, and the CSSG was roaring out of the gate. Just eight days later, the ethics commissioner announced he was opening an investigation into the process of awarding of the program. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story 
behind the CSSG controversy. 